This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to the Beamsy and Brit podcast. She hits hard. She'll get the six. Grace Harris sets a new mark in the WBBL with a 42 ball punt. There's a run out of the bowlers end. Unbelievable. Bold. Sarah Coitz has got the wicket and it's all high fives for the players in the green and gold. Beamsy and Brit, who are they? Hello and welcome to another episode of the Beamsy and Brit podcast, the maiden cricket podcast of ABC Sport. My name is Brittany Carter and joining me as she always does for Beamsy and Brit is Kristen Beams, former Australian leg spinner and also the coach of the Governor General's Eleven that has beaten South Africa before the tour against Australia. Beamsy, welcome back to the pod. We have so much to talk about, as I always say. <laughs> I was so excited first off, to see your team defeat South Africa and just some of the young talent we have in Australia shine. Hey, Britt, lovely to be with you. Yeah, I I think we just got a really nice little glimpse of the future of Australian cricket um, last week with the the Governor-General's eleven and and that defeat of of South Africa. I think, you know, they obviously had a couple of players that didn't play in that game, namely Marazan Cap, but I think to, to see the incredible that we've got um, through Australian cricket from all over the country to to come together to play up up against a, an international team and and beat them like that that is not an easy feat so it was yeah a really enjoyable couple of days for me to to just be around and and get a front row seat to what's an exciting future for Australian cricket and a team that's kind of pulled together a bit of talent from each state doesn't get a lot of time to prepare with each other before the match. And, yes, Marazan Cat was missing. She's huge for South Africa, so that was a big loss. But they trained together. They're in the elite system of their country. So they had a really strong chance coming into this. So it was nice to see an upset. Your team won by four wickets. The match was at North Sydney Oval. And I think you were telling me that the Governor-General has 100% winning record for the matches he's attended for this for this occasion is that right yeah well we we had an incredible function um at admiralty house and to go there and to you know see the beautiful sights and and spend time with the governor general and his wife was a, was a really really great experience and he did say look no pressure but i've got a hundred percent winning record um and i'd like to maintain that so it was uh yeah put the girls under a little bit of pressure but it was yeah it was really good to see them come together and you know keep in mind this team didn't spend time training together in the lead up of this game they've been in their their state environments some of them playing WNCL, some on sort of the fringes of WNCL, um, and they've come together in in basically a day and then um, defeated an international team. It was um, it was a pretty special thing to be a part of. Now, Chloe Ainsworth was one of the standouts. She dismissed new South African captain Laura Wolvart for a duck straight up, and that really set the tone. She took two wickets in total, and so did Courtney Sipple. And then in reply, we saw some really impressive work with the bat, particularly from Sophie Molyneux, 59 runs at the top, and also uh, from Tess Flintoff, 42 runs from her in the middle, just showing off the Victorian talent. I mean, you must have been so proud with the way it all pans out. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think, you know, if you have a look at Chloe Ainsworth's record, I'd, I'd love to see who she's um, dismissed in WBBL and, and now the the Governor-General's 11, she, she's probably got some pretty incredible scalps, you know, none probably better than Laura Woolvard, and I think she's a, an outstanding batter. But, yeah, really nice to see them kind of show off their, 
their skills and you know some of the players in in that team had been coming back from injuries Tess Flintoff Sophie Molyneux really good examples who played really well through that game as well so you know sometimes it can be challenging when you're going through injuries but to see players you know coming out the other side of that and playing really good cricket was was also great to watch. And just on the coaching personal aspect of it all for yourself do you see yourself coaching teams like this in the future again? Yeah, I hope to to spend more time um, in and around teams. It's a it's a, it feels like a really fortunate part of the current role that I'm in. That you know you're working within the the system as well, but but also get the the chance to to do some coaching as well. Um, but it was a really cool experience. We had Grant Lambert and Jenny Gunn um, both work for for Cricket New South Wales. So even as a coach, to be able to go and spend time with with other coaches, you know, Jenny Gunn and I spent a lot of time playing cricket against each other. So <laughs> to actually be on the other side of it and and be able to just sit and talk cricket um, w- was a really good learning experience for me personally as well. What did you learn from Jenny in particular? Oh, I think she's just got, she's a really laid back kind of character and um, just the way that that she sees the game. And um, yeah, I think she's the sort of person as a, you'd love to have her around as a, as a coach, because I think she's, she's pretty chilled and um, yeah, nice to talk about some of the pace bowling and stuff like that. I, I don't profess to know anything around um, pace bowling as well. So I'm just an angry little spinner. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, nice to talk to them about, yeah, thoughts on the game and, um, you know, how we can bring a a team together and and connect. So it was, yeah, really good fun. Well, we are, of course, here to talk about the South Africa series against Australia and the three T20s that have happened so far. Just before we get there, one more talking point I want to get out of the way. The ICC Awards, we've just been talking about Australian emerging talent. Phoebe Litchfield managing to win the ICC Women's Emerging Cricketer of the Year for 2023 was such a huge deal in my eyes. We also saw some of our stars make the T20 Team of the Year and the ODI Team of the Year. There were some regulars uh, across the the pair as well. Beth Mooney, Elise Perry, Ash Gardner made both of those squads. So that was really nice to see. But Phoebe Litchfield, I mean, I think we speak about her, if not every podcast, every second podcast, Beamsy, and just how much of a star she is going to be for years and years for this Australian team. But to be recognised with that award, I could just imagine how proud her family is knowing that they've played such a big role to get her where she is and that her father coached her as well before she was picked up by the Sydney Thunder. Yeah, I think she would have been absolutely stiff if she hadn't have won this award. I think she's just been the standout young player um, in international cricket. And I think I would have been personally fuming a little bit if she, she didn't get it. I think the way that She's gone about her cricket. I think the way that she's had success, not, you know, she's not a young player who's come in and had success on on our wickets. She's actually got it done overseas. And, you know, to see her then have some success through the 100 as well, I think she's a player on the rise and um, a very deserving winner of that award. You're giving off this idea that you have a very angry personality, but I know that's not not really the case. <laughs> I'm, yeah, maybe I've, yeah, maybe I'm. that's just a persona I'm trying to get out there. <laughs> I did also want to mention as well that the ICC Women's ODI Cricketer of the Year was Tramari Adipadu just after the kind of run that she's had. Um, yeah, you know, being disrespected by some of the leagues, not picked up and getting an opportunity through the back door sometimes as an injury replacement and whatnot. She has been picked up for the WPL now, so she'll get her first shot in India this year in 2024, which is exciting. And we uh, almost dedicated a whole episode to Chamari Adipadu after the WBBL 
season when we wrapped that. But yeah, I just was really pleased to see that award go to her as well. Yeah, I think everyone, I think every international player would probably be like, I'm really happy that that she's won that award. I think, you know, she's a, she is a player that probably can consider herself pretty unlucky um, in and around, you know, franchise cricket. You know, she's performed internationally and it hasn't kind of translated into some of those professional contracts in franchises. So, um, and also you think about what that will mean for for her individually, but also for Sri Lankan cricket as well. I think, you know, you're generally going to see your, your player of the year from one of your really dominant um, ranked teams um, within international cricket. So I think it's also a, a kind of a really tip your hat moment for Sri Lankan cricket as well. Yep. And to be named as captain in the ODI and T20 teams of the year like that. I just don't think you can get higher praise unless you win the Rachel Hayhoe Flint trophy, which eventually went to Nat Simmerbrunn again. But, uh, oh, she just should be so proud of the grit and determination she's showed to keep at it despite being knocked back a couple of times when she's gone for opportunities. Okay, South Africa, let's get there. We have seen them beat Australia for the first time ever in any format, which has been huge for the Proteas. They won the second T20. It's such a big deal, particularly in that format, because there was the most recent World Cup held in their home country in Cape Town where they finished runners-up to Australia in the final. And then we think back even to the previous T20 World Cup we hosted MCG, of course, we played against India. But before we could even get there, we had this miracle night at the SCG in the semis where rain disrupted the match cruelly between England and India. And then somehow Australia and South Africa get on the park. South Africa were probably favourites going into that one, knowing the form that they'd had going into the match. And they just couldn't get it done on the night. So much luck and the cricket gods going Australia's way. So there is a bit of a rivalry there. To see them finally get up and win a match against the world number one side, I was excited. And I know that feels un-Australian to say, but I think it was just about time it happened. Yeah, I, I think, look, it was a it was a great win. I'm probably not with you in in the sense that it's it's good for cricket because I just care what's good for Australia. So I I just go with, you know, I'm not, I'm completely biased. But I think it was a really good game for, for South Africa, that middle game, just because it felt like, Australia had dictated a lot in that first game and Mm. it seemed like they went away and got their planning right from a bowling perspective. So when they came into game two, all of a sudden it looked like Australia, they could put Australia under pressure. So I think that's always a really big compliment to an international team when they can learn their lessons off the back of a, a loss and then straight away put it into practice and and get that win. And, and you did get the sense that at the end of that, that first innings, it, it did feel like Australia were probably 30 short and probably, you know, 30 or 40 short based on our very high expectations of what they, they can achieve. And then, you know, Laura Woolvart got to play the sort of innings that, that we have probably known to, to come and love um, around just playing really good cricket shots as well. So um, I think it set up the the series really well that that they won that that second game. I'm I'm probably just not quite with you in the sense of loving the fact that South Africa beat Australia. I'm smiling. That's fair enough. I actually didn't expect you to be with me on that one, so that's <laughs> absolutely fine. Okay, so let's go through game by game. So we did start with a bit of success for the Australians in Canberra. The first match was played, and Australia won this one by eight wickets. Honestly, I was a bit worried how the series might pan out after watching this one because it did feel one-sided, and I thought 
what is South Africa going to bring to this tour? They've lost against the Governor General's eleven, which is supposed to be some kind of warm-up match, and then they've lost against Australia. Felt pretty one-sided in this occasion too. So anyway, we know that their luck did turn around. But to start off with, Elisa Healy has had so much luck with the toss. She's won all three tosses for all three matches so far. In this one, we saw the Aussies decide to bowl first and Marazen Cat was back for this match, which was good news for South Africa. Opener Tamsin Brits was the Protea's best player with the bat. She made a solid 59 runs and was not out at the end of the innings, but she just needed someone to come along with her. The wickets fell pretty consistently and there were moments of brilliance from her teammates like Annika Bosch, who managed two sixes and was out shortly after that for 14. So after the 20 overs, the Proteas were six for 147, which seemed low, but it's always hard to judge on a wicket like that what a good total might be. Did you think at that point they might have had enough on the board, Beamsy? I mean, the Aussies did win by eight wickets, but it still took them 19 overs to get there and they only lost two wickets in the process. But, you know, they, they took it down to that final over South Africa. So... It's not like it was a walk in the park for Australia. There was still some work that had to be done. Yeah, it felt short um, for me in terms of runs um, at the end of that. And I think more so because everything has to go right for you when you've got that sort of total, I think. Um, and that's a challenging thing to do against Australia, right? So I, I think you've got to bowl to perfection to be able to do that. And and I think, you know, Australia probably would have looked at that total and gone, yeah, we actually, all we have to do is is go about our business. And I think that's a challenge in T20 cricket because the the scores continue to rise and, you know, scores like that, you just kind of go, yeah, you would expect to win those nine times out of 10. But I agree with you. It did take them probably a, a little bit longer, but it, it just never looked in doubt for me. Um, yeah. It just felt like they kind of just cruised through and, you know, if needed, the, you know, and obviously the run rates and net run rates and all that stuff didn't really count. But, you know, if required, they probably could have pushed a little bit harder and, and finished it off a couple of overs sooner. Now, the pitch at Manuka Oval wasn't talked about in the most flattering of circumstances. Once again, it copped some heat from Pakistan when they were here playing the Prime Minister's eleven earlier this summer in the men's cricket. And last episode, we said we thought it might have been a drop-in pitch, which once I spoke to some of my colleagues that actually called the games there, it appears it is not. So a little correction there from me. But it did get called a road a number of times, even by Beth Mooney, who managed 72 runs and carried her bat throughout the entire 20 overs for Australia. With this performance, she not only took the mantle as the female player with the most international runs scored on this deck, but also at the highest average. So what did you make of this innings from Beth Mooney? What makes her the player that she is? I think when you start talking about players being consistent in T20 cricket, you know you're getting into really rare territory. So I think we've said that time and time again. You know, you've only got to look at the WBBL stats when you you start talking about Beth Mooney. And it, like people use that word consistently, like really flippantly. But T20, you just should not be that consistent, right? Like <laughs> you should be the highs are high and the lows are low. But you very rarely see that from Beth Mooney. I think she just always looks like she's in control of her innings and in control of what she's doing. And I think what I probably enjoyed watching. Um, about her was was just just moving through those gears. It was like actually I can see what she's going to do here, and and she does hit to some different areas, um, and she's always moving her feet around. I, I think she's such a hard bowler 
to to bowl to because you actually don't know whether she's going to walk at you, give herself some rude to hit it through the offside. She's just got so many options, but they all look like they're easy options for Beth Mooney. And again, we shouldn't talk about batting being easy in T20 cricket, mm-hmm. but when you watch Beth Mooney, you're like, wow, I feel at ease. Like this is just going to be really good to watch. Um, and I, I'm not sure that, you know, you can do much more than that as a batter in this format. She's so level-headed and she does like a drop and run, but I think you're right. I hear what you're saying in that she likes to play to all areas of the ground. She's got a great shot selection. Just looking at those figures I mentioned, so 387 runs after this game she had at Monica Oval. She scored a century there and the average was at 129. So, yeah, Beth Mooney obviously likes playing in Canberra, but at the same time, and this could be a dumb question on my part, she said it was difficult to score runs was a bit of a tricky wicket, but also it was a bit of a road. So that confused me. Now, bear in mind, everyone listening, of course, I haven't played at the elite level, so I could be missing something glaringly obvious here. But I thought a road implied that it was an easy pitch to score runs on and hard to bowl on, like, say, a Karen Rolton Oval, where you expect people to make massive scores. You've played at Monica Oval before. Can you explain what Beth Mooney means when she says it's a road, but it was also tricky to score runs on? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's a road because I think it's a really hard place to to bowl on, as particularly as a as a spinner. But I, I think the only thing I can think of there is that she's talking about probably getting in on the wicket. Um, sometimes you can a wicket can be really good, but it's still you gotta you gotta get into your innings before you feel like you can. Okay, I've got the pace of the the wicket now, so um, sometimes that can be the challenge. So it can be sometimes a combination of is it a wicket that's a little bit hard to get in on, but once you're in there, it's okay, and and probably a combination of of really good bowling as well. So mm. you know sometimes we talk about you know the wicket being a bit tricky and you know being tricky to start on and, and whatever, but it's sometimes that's got a lot to do with with where the bowlers are bowling and are they picking up on the conditions of the wicket and there you know if it's a road you're probably going to see a few more change ups and slower balls and some some different things which present some different challenges for the batters. Okay, that makes sense. Thank you for breaking that down for me. I did love, though, that we see Beth Mooney front up for a press conference. She's probably like this glowing endorsement for Monica Oval at that point because she scored so many runs there and she goes, it's a road. Like she just cut it down so quickly. So I just love Beth Mooney's personality and I think it's shown there. There were some good signs for the Aussies in this one beyond Beth Mooney. And I really think Elisa Healy looks to be in better touch than she has been for a while with the bat. Hopefully that hand isn't bothering her as much as it was before. She reached 46 runs alongside Mooney and the pair had a 72-run partnership before she was dismissed by Nadine de Klerk. The other great sign was to see Elise Perry start to take on more of a role with the ball again. She bowled three overs and took two for 13. Good economy at 4.33. So I just thought it was nice to see both those players get back on track, Beamsy, after having some injury issues. Yeah, I thought Healy was really good and I think she played the way that, you know, we probably have expected her to play over a long period of time. She she goes out there and, and takes on the bowling and it, it's so complimentary when you think the way that Healy and Mooney both go about their business. It's it's a really nice combination um, up the top of the lineup. And, yeah, how nice to see Elise Perry back bowling. I, I think it it's another option for, for Healy as captain. It, it probably also is another headache because it becomes a, <laughs> another bowler that you've got to try and work into the the game as well. But yeah, it was really nice to to see her with with ball in hand. Um and I think it's great signs, hopefully for Australia leading into a, a World Cup year to to know that, you know, she's definitely going to be in their best eleven from a batting perspective, but she can also play that bowling role. It just gives them more flexibility in, in perhaps who they select 
from a bowling perspective. Yeah. Okay, so at this point after that match, Australia led the series overall 2-0 in the points. And I was a little bit concerned about how South Africa were going to respond within just a day, mind you, because these were back-to-back matches. But they did come off to win this one by six wickets, same venue, same wicket. Apparently the players said it played a little bit slower than it had the day before. This time Australia decided to bat first when they won the toss and it felt like the Aussies kind of limped to that 100 mark before Grace Harris came in at the back end to make a quick fire 31 runs and she did manage to make a measly total look a little bit more respectable at six for 142. The tone was probably set with the fall of the first wicket at one for 27 when Elisa Healy smashed the ball back to class for a return catch chance. Class got a hand to it but couldn't hold the catch and Beth Mooney was already backing up ready to set off for another single at the other end. She was out of her crease as the ball deflected off Class's hand and smashed into the non-striker's stumps. At the time, all Elisa and Beth could do was just laugh because it just felt so unlucky. But there had been at least three court and bold chances South Africa had dropped by that point. So I think Mooney knew that she'd had enough lifelines and it was just about her time in the game to go. From there, it felt like some of the batters threw away their wicket too easily. Would you have been livid if you were at the other end beamsy like Mooney or would you have taken this as well as she did and laughed it off? Yeah, I think you, I think you have to laugh or you cry. Like that's the category I'd, I'd put it in. I think, you know, I think it probably makes a difference whether you're in good touch or not. And I think knowing that that Beth's been in really good touch, she was probably able to take it a, a bit better than others. But I, I think if you weren't in great form, you'd be going, oh, no, if like your reaction might be a little bit different. But it sort of feels like one of those anomalies in the game. It's like when a tennis player hits a shot and it hits the net and then just rolls over the net and it's, you know, and you kind of go, sorry, like it just is what it is. Like it's it's not perfect. It's, you know, you can say, look, this is pretty unlucky. But, yeah, I think laugh or you cry. Yeah, that's fair. Now, I did see people saying online that we need to come up for a better name for this because currently it's run out of the non-striker's end, but that's a bit of a mouthful. Have you got any ideas? Yeah, I find I did see that as well. I was like, well, hang on, what, what are we going to give it some sort of like funny name? I, I just think it's run out, right? Like, and, and I don't think it matters whether which end it is or whatever else. I think we've just got to call it a run out and then just leave it at that. And you certainly don't want people naming it after you, like Mancad is named after another player. Like, you don't want that to. Yeah, we to don't be... want the Mooney, right? Like, no. You got Mooneyed. Like, no one wants that. No. Okay, so run out of the non strikers end, it remains. Uh, South Africa were chasing a total pretty similar to the one they had set the day before when they batted first, knowing they could very well get there and win and that it was achievable. And a really strong opening partnership from Brits and Woolvart, who made 75 runs together, set the platform for what was to come. Marazan Cap played some clever shots to reach the boundary and tally 20 runs in the 15th over. And from there, they lost a couple of wickets, but the finishing partnership of Woolvart and Chloe Tryon was solid enough to get them there with an over to spare. I thought the improvement from one game to the next, one day to the next for Laura Woolvart was really impressive. Not only were the team's tactics much better in with the ball in the, in the field, but she also led by example with the bat, putting on 58 runs herself. She was rewarded with player of the match honours. And I found it fascinating listening to the broadcast because they were talking about how Laura had been having a chat to some of the people around Big Bash because she plays with the strikers. Obviously, we know her very well here in Australia. 
And she's really done her homework trying to learn as much as she can about the tactics she should be using in these conditions. So to see her pull off that in just 24 hours and such a change and turnaround, I was quite impressed by that. Did you think that was a good sign of what's to come in terms of captaincy and leadership from Laura Wolvart? Yeah, definitely. I think you want to, as a captain, always have that kind of learning mindset that you, you're always trying to figure it out and find a different way. And just because it works one day doesn't mean it works the next day. And I think that was just a really good example of of someone going away and 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 actually just having to think about what worked and and what didn't work as well. So I think I think it was a good couple of days for for Laura Wolvart from from that perspective, and and also to have the opportunity to to play that lead role in a winning performance. I, I think that can't be underestimated. It's probably really given her a lot of confidence, not only from a batting perspective, but also from a captaincy perspective to kind of nail, if there's a perfect game for a captain, it's probably to be tactically really good, but then lead in your skill set. So I think it was a very good day for her and and what confidence she can take out of that into the the rest of the, the series. Because keep in mind, these teams play against each other mostly in World Cups, right? You don't, yeah. you don't get those opportunities for multiple games in a format, um, and and that's what the opportunity is for, for South Africa in both T20s and, and 50 over games because they don't really get that very often. Um, so th- they just want to have that continuous learning, and I, I think we've seen that. Did this match tell you? Despite all of that homework we just spoke about Laura Wolvart doing, talking to other captains and other players around Australia, did this match tell you that South Africa may have been a little bit underdone in their preparations and that they just needed perhaps the extra game to warm into the conditions here in Australia? Yeah, it's always a big question around what the right preparation is. I think I've been reading about lots of different teams and how they go go about their preparation. I know that the England men's cricket team was... Um, kind of criticised because they 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 weren't in India for a long period of time before then, but they were somewhere else. I think they're in Dubai. So the this question around preparation on conditions is a is a really interesting one, and it, and it's probably a tough one in terms of you know a tour is going to go for a certain amount of time. This is a multi format tour, so it's a it's probably a long tour anyway. So to add on, ideally you would want an extra week, right? You'd have, you'd have that have probably played a couple of tour games and had a little mm. bit time in the conditions if to have that sort of perfect preparation but how do teams prioritize who they're going to do that against knowing that you know there's, there's probably some big budget implications to coming out and spending an additional week in, a, in Australia so I would say that most teams would love an extra week um, how feasible it is 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 probably the, the big question. And who are they going to play knowing that WNCL is in full swing that's the difficult part isn't it trying to find the right opposition I guess. Yeah, and I think that's why the the Governor General's game has been a, a really good one um, that's in there because it, we sort of know that's going to be in the calendar and we know there's going to be some cricket around that time. So it's, it's you know, much like the PM's 11 game, it, it's already in the fixture. So it's just kind of who they're going to play against. So um, I think to be able to offer more than one tour game, you probably need a a similar type game where, you know, players mm-hmm. kind of know that that's happening and you can kind of schedule it in between the the domestic cricket, which is not an easy thing to do. There's a lot of cricket happening at the moment. Yeah, there's a lot. Okay, so as we headed to Hobart for the final T20, the third and final T20, the series was level in terms of points to all and also wins one all. But Australia did go on to win this third one by five wickets at Belrive Oval. Why do we think they do this to the schedule, Beamsy? I get the playing around the same ground twice 
in two days or even three days because it's cost effective and you could knock out the first two matches quite quickly. But we saw them obviously go from Canberra to Hobart. Why do they do that with the women's white ball schedules? Because we'll see a similar thing happen later on in the overall series with a couple of games played at North Sydney Oval, but then one at Adelaide Oval. I get it, but I also think it's kind of odd to have two games there and then one game elsewhere. Would it not be better to have all three games at one point or spread all three games out? I reckon three games in one venue is is hard because I think you've then got the question of how many wickets you're bringing up. So can the, from a curator perspective, can they bring up enough wickets? Because you definitely couldn't, I don't think you could use the same wicket three times in a row. So therefore it becomes more of a question around how do you want to move the the games around? So should it be three different venues um, across that period? I, I suppose you've got to look at it from a multi-format perspective is the the spread of where the games were played across the, the entire series. So, um, yeah, I don't really know how that, that kind of gets determined, but we're obviously going to end up at the, the whacker for a test match, which is, which is fantastic. So, yeah, I wonder whether it's partly ground availability, but, but also what's kind of efficient because there's sort of, you know, you can't play back-to-back games, so you need to have a couple of days break. Does that then make it easier to move to another um, a venue? I don't know. Um, yeah. It's, yeah, it's always it's always a question that kind of comes up. Yeah, I just don't think I've seen the men do that. And the, I just see it as a pattern in the women's game a lot. Two games here, one game here. Just something weird I've noticed. This match became very quickly the Beth Mooney show again. Australia won the toss, elected to bowl. And this time they made sure they got the early breakthrough and didn't let the two batters at the top get set and pile on a big opening partnership. Ash Gardner got the early wicket, seeing Brits off for a four-ball duck thanks to a catch from Grace Harris. Then Harris helped Megan Shute get rid of Laura Woolvart for 15. She took another catch before she ran out Sune Luz for a two-ball duck. Grace Harris was just everywhere, man. She was up and about in Hobart and I bet the South Africans didn't like her that much after she took a a hand in getting rid of those three wickets. Now they were reeling at three for 28 at this point before Marazan Cap provided some stability and she was difficult to contain, telling 75 runs off 48 balls, reaching the boundary rope 10 times and smashing a six during that innings. The middle order did their bit. Bosch, Tryon and Nadine de Klerk all reached the 20s as they tried to build partnerships. And at the end of the 20 overs, they were seven for 162, the biggest total we'd seen from them so far on the tour. And the players were open about how they'd found this wicket a lot better to bat on. There was not any one bowler, however, that seemed to take off for Australia and the wickets were shared around. They were all also pretty expensive. Cap has been regarded as a dangerous player, Beansy, for her all-round capabilities. I would argue she's probably been more dangerous so far in this tour with the bat, though, than she has been with the ball. Yeah, I thought she was really good with the bat. And, and you know, she's batting at three. It's a really key batting position in a T20 lineup. And I think her numbers in, you know, T20 from a batting perspective are, are probably not as good as, as she would like. But I, I thought it was a really significant moment when Brits got out. I, I think she's been very good in the series so far. So it sort of was like, oh no, is this, is this going to be really costly? But I thought the way that Cap came out and actually tried to take the bowling on right from the word go, I think that was really telling and she played some incredible shots. Uh, So, you know, I'm really curious about where Marazan Cap will get to as an all-rounder, because I think in terms of longevity in her career, I think she has the capacity to finish her career as a batting all-rounder. 
Um, mm. And then if she is, you know, she's still going to be really effective from a bowling perspective, but she's going to have more longevity if she's more of a, a batter in that space. And, and we've seen some of the fast bowlers play more of a batting role at the back end. I think Catherine Brunt has been one of those players um, that, that has kind of done that. So, yeah, I'm curious to see where she gets to. But if she continues to bat at three and can put together innings like she did last night, I, I think it, it bodes really well for her future. When it came time to chase... 163. I think we always knew this Aussie team would be capable of that, but really there was one player that pretty much single-handedly won the game and that was the one, the only Beth Mooney. It's been reported she had food poisoning in the days leading up to this third T20, but she would have had no idea watching her do her thing. 82 runs off 55 balls. It was a stunning performance. She bowed out in the 18th over and to her credit, Ash Gardner also did her bit. She took over from there and put an important 26 runs on the board. But it was again the Beth Mooney show and she was the player of the match. I did see on the broadcast that Molly Striner was having a chat with Elisa Healy <laughs> as Beth Mooney was um, out on the park smashing them around. And there was some talk about perhaps Beth staying out late the night before with Molly. And I, knowing Molly Strano's personality and you're quite close with her, Beamsy, that kind of wouldn't have surprised me that if they had, you know, got out together, had some fun. Um, she's such a laugh, Molly Strano, that it would have been hard to to say goodbye to her and head back home and go to bed early. But then we did hear from the commentators that that might have been played up a bit. So can you shed some truth and some light on maybe what happened there? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that they just went for dinner, which I, I want to make sure that people know that it's it's not common practice to get food poisoning from going out for a nice dinner in Hobart. That I just want to put that out there. But um yeah, I thought I thought poor Tasmania, like the everyone's promoting that, you know, Beth Mooney got food poisoning by going out for dinner with Molly mm. But um yeah, but I believe that was the that was potentially uh, what had happened there. But incredible to to kind of work through that. I, I think I've seen that a little bit in in overseas conditions and um, where where players have sort of been sick and and come through and and it's a really hard thing to do when you when you're unwell to to get up and and perform. But um, you know, it probably would have been there would have been a lot of conversations about what are we going to do if if she doesn't get up here because she's such an integral part of of the team. But you're right, you actually wouldn't know it that that she was unwell at all. I thought the way that she she took on the bowling. Um, she was up and down the wicket, you know, like you you wouldn't have begrudged her at all if she'd have just been jogging between the wickets and and not putting in the yards. But uh, yeah, we, we would have done a great job to guess that she was sick through that that match. Okay, so it makes sense now. They went for dinner and then Beth got food poisoning and was up to 4am. I've only got half the story there. I thought she must have had it in the days leading up, but she literally was up to 4am unwell. So, wow, it just makes it even more remarkable what she was able to do. Now, talking about the batting order, it was interesting that we saw T-Mac drop down from third to fifth in this one to see if she could find some form after going out in the 20s in the first two matches. And she has had a bit of a scratchy summer with the bat. The switch up didn't quite work. She was still out for 16. An easy catch in the covers off the bowling of Nadine de Klerk in the end to get rid of her. What did you make of this change? And do you think we'll see T-Mac remain potentially at fifth now we head into the one-day component of the series? Yeah, I'd be curious as to whether that was a about, you know, her form or the matchups. I, I think that, you know, I just think when they've got so many options from a batting perspective, I wondered whether it was more about who was going to be the right matchup um to the particular bowlers in the chase. So yeah, that that's that's a curious one for me. I, I think she's she's certainly looking to 
um, you know, kind of find some form. There, there's no doubt about that. Um, and, and probably the the one days have come at a really nice time. And, you know, we, we think back to India through that test match and she was, was incredible. Um, but again, they've played a lot of different formats, this Australian women's team over that period of time. So I reckon one day cricket is, is probably a welcome change for, for T-Mac. Just reflecting on the crowds we've seen over the past three games, um, I'm kind of interested in the little interest I think we're seeing in this series, Beamsy. I know there's been an amazing test series play out for the Australian men and probably that's kind of stealing all the attention at the moment if you're a fan that's across the men's and the women's game. But, yeah, I just find that maybe there's not enough marketing around. I mean, the crowds seem to be holding at around that 2,000 mark, which is good on average to see that fans are maintaining that mark. But I think just knowing what we've been able to see in other sports, in women's sport in Australia over the past year, the heights they've reached with crowds, how many people are turning up now. I just see all that empty space on the hill or in the stands, whatever it may be, and I think, oh, when are we going to fill those and how are we going to get there? And maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but I'd love to know your thoughts and potentially why we're not seeing the crowds turn up the way I would like to see them at these games. Yeah, I think it's really challenging going head to head with the the test summer. I think in terms of the broadcast and and everything that goes into promoting the test summer, I, I think it's really challenging. And even though the games have been in and around making sure that people can still watch them and then um, you know, the the test match was starting later and because of the day night and all that sort of stuff. I, I think that's helpful from a broadcast perspective, but I think that's probably still makes it pretty challenging for people to actually go and and see a game. And you know, the you know, the Hobart game's on a Tuesday night, like there's there's some things in there. And it's it's not a, a perfect science, I think, in in how you fixture your your cricket because it can be challenging to to making sure that you can fit all the cricket in so you don't necessarily get those perfect nights of the week and all that sort of stuff. But I'm still a big believer that we, we need to find a dedicated window for the Australian women's team as part of their sort of home summer. So I think that that's the best way to, to promote the the games that are happening and, and sort of just find a, a little window where we go, actually, we know that in the first two weeks of September, we're always going to be able to um, go and see the Australian women's team because we know there's always going to be cricket. And, and that's a really hard thing to do, but I, I think that would be the the answer for me. And I think if they can achieve that, I think we'll see crowds grow and grow. In primetime viewing too. Like I think that's key, treating it like it is a primetime product. So looking ahead, three ODIs to come, all worth two points. We head to Adelaide Oval on February 3rd before heading north to North Sydney Oval for the matches on February 7th and February 10th. How are we expecting these to pan out? The wicket at North Sydney Oval has not been some people's favourite in the past, but there are small boundaries there. So do you think we might see some big scores with the bat and some big totals? Yeah, I think so. I think it's a, it's a bowler's nightmare, North Sydney, but it's a batter's dream. And uh, look, I think for um, Australia through these these ODI games, they're going to be so difficult to beat. I, th- I think South Africa have got a real challenge uh, ahead of themselves I Look, I, I'm happy to be wrong, but I, I feel like it, it will be a, a three-zip um, result through these one days. I think Australia have just got so many incredible options and depth in in their lineup um, that they're going to be so hard to to beat across a one-day format. Um, I'd expect that the teams are closest in the the T20, and and uh, you know the Test match is probably an unknown. But I think that the ODI cricket is Australia's sweet spot. Yeah, the ODI cricket, definitely their strongest format. Well, thank you for the bold call. Thank you for your insights today. And you'll hear from us next on the podcast after the One Day Internationals to wrap that part of the series. You've been listening to Beamsy and Brett.
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.